a bunch of movies during the quarantine oh, yeah. here that I that I had not seen before. Like I, I've all I, I am like I saw Back to the Future for the first time Are about a year serious? ago. I have never seen Top Gun, The Karate Kid. Until two weeks ago, I had never seen Beverly Hills Cop one or two, or Die Hard one or two. Holy, Dave! How and is I that? Have, I have consumed all of these in the last. Whoa, whoa! Two wait weeks. a minute! Wait a minute! You know, for and for a show that and how and uh, the Dave Chappelle movie. Oh, half baked. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah, half baked that, for that... the first time. In the... Hold on! Wait. So, okay. That, so, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Is that on... incredible? That's. Inc- that's... Let's talk. It, it Just staggers. go, baby. Okay, so the first Die Hard movie. Like, yeah. Do you th- do you think it uh, lives up to the reputation of being one of like the two or three best action movies of all time? So I think both Die Hard movies are great. I think Speed is better than both. Wow, that is a I bold have... statement. No, I think Speed is better. I'm a huge Speed guy. Speed's gr- oh, Speed. But I, I put Di- Die Hard. They must be. Those are like the same. I love the one day movies. I mean, Speed technically they start out at the the yeah. scene at the office building. But that's a prologue. So, yeah, and, it's fine. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they have a prologue there before the morning where the fundamentally the movie begins. Right. They have the, the award ceremony. They have the scene at the elevator at the office building. And then they have Jack hung over from after the award ceremony when the bus blows up and he, like, kicks into action. Exactly. Yeah. The, the yeah. Die Hard 1 and 2 are all one-day movies, front to back. And I love them. I think they're <laughs> great. I, I love the window they provide into an era. Like, it, it is astonishing to me that I was alive. Like, and, and Midnight Run is another movie like this where it, it feels like the fucking Wild West or, or like you know, like where where Texas Rangers were walking into San Antonio, uh, fucking you know saloons, right? Yeah, no, dude. It, dude. Because you, airports, people are smoking. Walking onto the plane, people are smoking. <laughs> it's it's such a time. <laughs> it's Reagan's America. No man. security. Nope. You know, like the the thing right now, like they showed. Bruce Willis in 1990, and clearly with an action movie, you give him a little wiggle room, right? Where where certain security breaches could occur, right? That you kind of overlook, but even that, what you're willing to overlook is tied to reality still, right? So it, what what it shows me is that assuming you're willing to to say, you know, here's what you could actually, what could happen in real life, here's what is like five percent more than that, mm-hmm. the fact that the 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 things that occurred in these movies occurred shows you how how much lower the baseline was to kind of security related things than it is now right oh, in terms yeah. of the airport like it took place at Dulles airport that movie Bruce Willis just like sneaking behind into the luggage compartment and having a shootout like he's fucking anarchy, man. That's a the good... guy. The guy on the airplane, the guy who played Walter Peck. Yeah. From uh, Ghostbusters, yeah, yeah. the only two I, I've never seen him other than Ghostbusters. And by the <laughs> way, it took me like ten minutes to, to place when him. I saw him in Die. Yeah, to place him. But I didn't. He was an equal fucking prick. This two. What oh, like yeah, he he is two for two in gigantic fucking pricks. <laughs> Oh, he's the he's the he's the classic '80s prick. He's of a type you don't see a lot of anymore. No, he's, no, there no, aren't. But, no, but it's true. Die Hard Two is a good candidate for a movie that contextually makes no sense anymore. 
You know, it assumes it assumes a certain level of familiarity with the way things are done at a major institution like an airport that is just doesn't happen anymore. It's it's, a, it's as ludicrous a plot as like Under Siege or something like that. <laughs> I've never seen Under Siege, but there are uh, some great right. cameos in uh, Die Hard too, including uh, Fitz Wallace from The West Wing is in it. Is that really? So I... is the guy from NYPD Blue. Jimmy Smiths. Or, no, the or other guy, Dennis, Franz. Dennis Franz. Oh, Dennis Franz was the James Gandolfini of his day. Oh God, how dare you? You say, <laughs> poor man's James Gandolfini. That's a, that, actually, that's a better way to put it. Poor man's James Gandolfini. <laughs> I like that. Oh man. But yeah, so Beverly Hills Cop one and two. Never saw him until I've recently. Ne- actually, I've never seen Beverly Hills Cop one and two. Are they are they worth? Oh, Callie. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Immediately, like immediately, dude. Like I've seen, I've seen back to. The I had future. no idea how funny this guy was. Oh, Callie, yeah. Eddie oh, Murphy is so. Dude, he's a genius. Funny. Man. He's a he's a genius. I didn't. I didn't. Other than coming to America, which I, I don't oh, really. That's that my movie. only Eddie Murphy. And it's more of a buddy. You know. It's more of a buddy movie. It's not. Pr- it's the. It's the sort of movie that you make once you've made like. Once you've made Beverly Hills Cop, you couldn't make them in a different order. You know. Yeah, and it, and. But the, the barbershop scenes in that movie are, are just astonishingly brilliant. And Back and a lot of Beverly Hills Cop is the same thing. All right, that's good to know. I could watch. I could definitely watch Beverly Hills Cop. That'd be a fun one. What And what about Back to the Future, man? I've seen that movie probably a hundred times. You're kidding me. Like, I love that movie. When I probably saw it when I was like five. How did you grow up? We were born in the same year. How did you grow up and not, Wild, breathe, right? and not see Back to the Future? I don't know. I haven't seen Karate Kid. That too. I haven't I mean, seen Top Gun. Dude, I had these were movies I had like on VHS I that know. were the most treasured possessions I had as like an eight year old. Which, and I know for a fact, like you and I have overlapped because we were both Wayne's World fans from around the same time. Wayne's World, I, I, long may it live. Oh, such an under, underrated, underrated part of the Mike Myers defining movie of my so, of my. Comedic yes, and to, sensibilities. And to quote Wayne in reference to Rob Lowe, the movie itself was way ahead of its time. I mean, truly, it's a kind of comedy that became really popular, like like fifteen years after it came out. It, it is just so good. I adore that there, movie. Like, I love every, I love I everything about it. Movie. That's so there good. is not. Could you imagine a situation where you're flipping through the channel? Or the guide, and you go to Wings World, and they're in a part where you're like, "Oh, this is like oh, yeah, a like, bad stretch of 15 minutes to, to spend my time right oh, now." It's the comedy version of A Few Good Men, right? You come, yeah, you come so, across A Few Good Men at any moment when you're flipping channels, and that's what you're watching until the credits are done rolling. I mean, there's just you don't have another choice. What would you say is the weakest stretch of Wings World? Weakest stretch of Wings. Oh, um, the. Uh, the the like the third act crisis like the when 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 Wayne and uh, <laughs> Wayne and Cassandra when Wayne, yeah are like about to break up yeah when when they're on the when they're on the out <laughs> that's perfect oh yeah and everything's bad like that's you have to put it in for like the you know like plot structure but it's it was clearly like. 10, 12 <laughs> minutes of movie where they were they were just going through the motions, and then it and and, by the way, and Garth and him are in a fight there. So you're out, yeah. you're basically talking like after Garth and him get in a fight where yes. Wayne gets fired, right? Yes, he, yeah. he and Garth get in a fight, and Wayne everything breaks at that up at point once. breaks up with Cassandra, and he goes and tries to at to the to the donut shop and and makes amends with Garth. Right. They open the door, and there are the ninja guys fighting. 
And then they have those scenes where Garth and Russell are going to like capture Ben or like preempt Ben or something and they're crawling. Like I usually I fell on my keys. Okay, now see, but to me that's where it starts picking up. Once to me, once they've developed So what stretch are you referring to? No, I'm beginning to end. I'm referring to that stretch, but I guess appended to it, even though it's a bit removed in time, is like the music video shoot with the snake. Uh, no, that's oh, all no, that comes simultaneous. First. Yeah, you're right. Those are going on back and forth. You're right. Then that's then that's the stretch I'm talking about. Once they come up with I a agree. plan in the donut shop and say to the Mirthmobile and they're off, then the movie comes to its conclusion and I think it's all gold from there. And that includes, I fell on my keys. I lo- if and Benjamin were an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralines, <laughs> he be pralines and, dick. and dick. Like that's... You know that was Ugh. if that movie had Dana been, Carvey. If that movie had been made in two thousand and four, it would have become an instance. It would have, it would be more than a cult classic the way it is now. There's a the the, the most comparable analog to the Walter Peck douchebag we were talking about mm-hmm. is Russell in Wings World, where he is also the douchebag in Ghostbusters too. Almost the same kind of character that Walter Peck is in Die Hard too. Yeah, except I think Russell... Isn't that perfect? And they're both in Ghostbusters 1. They're the same guy. But Russell... No, Russell's more sympathetic. Like, he comes comes around in the end, whereas in Ghostbusters 2, he's a shithead. He he's much more the Walter Peck. He comes around in the end. I like... You're right. I have a soft spot for Russell in Wade's Worth. I've always thought he was... Benjamin's my friend. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? Benjamin's my... No, he has... And, like, the driving, I love you. Sir, I can assure you that (laughs) we're not on the cards when I gave them to him. (laughs) Oh, man. Wayne, Garth, you're nodding once again, Harry. (laughs) So, wait, so getting back to this, now, but, like, thoughts on... Thoughts on, you know, generation-defining film, Back to the Future? I like Back to the Future. I like all the Time Machine movies. I liked it a lot. Good. That's, that's I don't think it's that Wayne's World level. I love movies that give you a good sense of what the world was like. And this is what I was trying to say about Die Hard 2. It's like, it, it, that, that movie gives, gives me a window into early the 90s Die Hard does and Back to the Future I felt gave me a window into the 80s and the 50s it's also especially now and I love that movies that kind of transform you tra- tra- trans what's the word transport you what transport you right yeah well no because it's it's weird to think that we are we're as far removed from 1985 as 1955 was from 1985 and it's strange to look and obviously you know being a small kid at the time I I couldn't really make sense of the way adults then related to a period 30 years in the past now it makes more sense to the, me oh that's such a thing I think about that all the time yeah exactly I mean it's all the time like I think about things like when Thomas Jefferson was running for president in 1800 to him the Declaration of Independence that he wrote was the equivalent to me being 10 years old right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, viewing things through that kind of prism. Yeah, and it's only something that becomes... It's only something you can really do when you become old enough to even, to, like, think historically like that. You can't... To both think historically and to have experience... Like, when you're 20... Exactly. You don't don't actually have the experience for that to really resonate. You can think about it abstractly. But only now does it really hit home to me, like, oh yeah, okay, that's that's how you relate to something that has truly become the past, as opposed to just like the early contemporary, mm-hmm. which is what I tend to th- I think when you're like when you're like in high school, right? Like, I mean, yeah, the past, 
Yeah, the past doesn't. The past prior to when you're born just doesn't exist. It's irrelevant to you, and all that really exists as your time horizon is like the near contemporary. It's crazy too when you kind of go back. The older you get, the more wild the proximity becomes, yeah. right? So if you think like now to nine eleven, right, the amount of time that's gone by there, it doesn't feel like that much. It doesn't feel like that much. No, but it's been. Yet in 1983. It was like, you know, you have to have, you have, when we were born, Vietnam had happened more recently than 9-11 had now. Yep. Watergate, the moon landing, you know, uh, all that stuff. It it is extraordinary. The Beatles, the fucking Beatles. Yeah. 14 years before we were born, the Beatles were killing it. Yeah. God, you're right. Yeah. And, and. So what band was killing it 14 years ago? Lady Gaga? Yeah. No, I mean, nothing, nothing Think about like the, the proximity there. John Lennon had died like two years earlier. Yeah. We were so, born 100,000 fucking years ago when you look at things that way, dude. Exactly, man. Exactly. And now, but, and now we actually have the perspective where you can think of your own life as covering um, like a really intelligible block of history. Like you could pick any, right. you could pick any 20 year period in history and you could spend the rest of your life tracing out all the possible developments that occurred over that period of time and now we actually have just in our own lifetimes enough experience to really make sense of that concept it'll be wild when we get old enough like we so the holocaust happened what 40 45 years before we were born yeah when we're 50 we will look back i mean to a degree that is unimaginable now i bet Oh, we yeah. will look back and say, you know, before we were born, the Holocaust happened. Yeah, so it's, this period of time. It's the sort of thing, and I think especially if, dep- you're, if you're like the descendant of survivors, it's the sort of thing where you can imagine yourself as an old person telling like your grandchild that you knew a very old person who lived through this thing. And right. And in a sense, that's that's about as far as, as your arms can reach. You know what I mean? That's, that's about as much connection as you can make yeah. in periods of and, time. You know, and that's, that's people, wild. Our generation will be the oldest generation to be able to say, I had grandparents who fought in World War II. Oh, yeah, exactly. I've, we are going to, right? I've, I always, we knew people who fought in the war. I noticed that with my students that... Um, um, I just, I, it takes me a while to assume like, yeah, there's a generational difference here such that if I talk about like their grand, like if I'm referring to their grandparents in the sort of the generalized way, often if I'm doing that, I'm using myself and I'm referring to the war generation and I have to realize the what I, generation, the war generation, right? Like people, uh-huh. like when I think of, if I'm, if I was to refer to you as, oh, you don't realize that they're a generation behind you. Exactly. Right. If, in other words, if right. I, if I generalize to you in some way about our grandparents generation, you and I both know we're talking about uh, the same period in history, right? Right, right. And I really, and I, I, I'm, I used to lose sight of that. I've gotten a lot better with it, just because over, you know, over time you do. But it's one of those things I've noticed because it's, it's a dis- it's a different thing, man. I mean, my grandfather was born 103 years ago. Like that is, there's such a stretch there now. Like that means nothing. to Think of who he knew. Yeah. He did, did. It's like that that is the craziest thing. I remember being it, when I, you have kids, man, if you ever have kids one day, it, it 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 there's a magnifying glass on this whole concept. Yeah, it puts you much more directly in touch with that, I imagine. You you ima- like yeah. uh do you do you ever imagine how people will talk about you after you're gone? Yeah. Isn't that a crazy thing to think about? Oh, it is. It's something you want to do sparingly, you know? <laughs> <laughs> small yeah small doses no but yeah. Exa- yeah and it's 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, I remember when I was probably seven or eight years old at a Memorial Day uh, celebration meeting a veteran of the First World War. And like, that's, I mean, I mean, he was like well into his nineties then, you know, and I think about that mm-hmm. and it's like, I could, you know, that's one of those things you could, I imagine like telling a grandkid of mine for whom the second world war, or the first world war rather was, you know, 150 years ago. Like the, me, your like, grandkid will view the world war one, the way you viewed the civil war. Exactly. It'd be like, so I, when you look at it that way, we are not that far fucking removed from the civil no, war, which no, is crazy. Your not. grandfather probably met somebody who fought in the civil oh, war. Oh yeah. I haven't seen Gettysburg in a long time. Oh man, it's such a great movie. Oh man. So hey, I did I did mean to ask you a question, just more of a that's debatable sort of thing. But do you do you are you satisfied with the way the Democratic Party has uh, responded to the to the coronavirus? Well, I I don't know how much more effect you'd like them to have. You know what I mean? Like what what is the right thing for a party? that has Joe Biden as the nominee, control of the House, not control of the Senate or White House? How would you like, what should the party do in that situation I think, that they haven't done? I think from, from a PR perspective, there should be a much more coherent message from the National Party about what the Democrats would do, and that should be closely linked to a House majority that's actually in session, even remotely, um, actually putting together, you know, a policy platform that, I mean, I know you can't push these people anything beyond, you know, center right, but it, it's not like, it's not like we couldn't be borrowing from much more, uh, robust national responses that you've seen in parts of Europe or Asia, uh, for tackling this crisis in a much more, in a much more direct way. And I just don't see the House Democrats doing that. And I'm, I'm frustrated by it, and I got to say, a lot of Democrats I know are frustrated by it. That there's just no, there's just no movement on anything. It's not like you see Biden out there, you know, a whole lot. It's so it's... what I haven't seen Biden much at all. We talked last time about how that may end up being a good thing that Biden's not out there too much. Which is ter- what... if you're trying to win the election, which is a shortcoming of Biden's. I, I, in perfect world, the nominee is the kind of guy that you do want to see out there and not don't want to see out there. Perfect world. but that's not the world we live in now so I think the fact that Biden's not out there much is not a terrible thing and if your goal is to win an election or even uh, you know achieve tangible policy outcomes I don't know what more you want them to do I would I mean I again like I said man I'd like to see a much more coherent house response and a much more aggressive a much more aggressive negotiating stance with Mnuchin, with Trump, with the GOP in general. I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of good policy coming out of the House, and what is coming out is insufficient to the scale of the crisis. And they've let, they've let Trump control the narrative about this crisis in a dangerous sort of way. They just seem, they just seem doddering, man. They just don't seem like they're really up Pelosi, to the job. Pelosi has been at a, at, at a tactical disadvantage relative to Schumer and McConnell and Mnuchin because she basically, until until last week, she was not in a position to bring the House together to vote on something, right? Which basically meant that they needed to use this kind of procedural shortcut that you're only allowed to do if you have, like, a minimum quorum of people, but there's no objection whatsoever. Right? So it to the Pelosi couldn't 
didn't have the usual leverage she has, which is, I don't care if Republicans oppose this. I'm standing firm on this ground because it's a principle Democrats have, and I have the votes to plow this shit through the, the chamber, period. She didn't have that luxury because she couldn't bring everyone back. Democrats were not, tra- you know, rank-and-file members were not traveling back to Washington two, three weeks ago. So she inevitably, she, she, she had, she was weakened because McConnell knew that anything that got passed could not be the kind of thing that would force people like McCarthy to demand a roll call vote so that everyone had to travel back, right? Pelosi had to avoid that, and that neutered her, right? So given that, how, what more should she have, have done to achieve things? I mean, the, but the premise is itself a failure, right? I mean, you're making the argument. You're making the argument that she was preemptively outmaneuvered, right? Which is which no, it's is, not outmaneuvered. How is that outmaneuvered? Well, it's outmaneuvered in the sense that you know, don't you think, <clears throat> don't you think it's a little strange that 20 years after 9/11, Congress doesn't have a system in place to uh, to conduct its work remotely in the event of not being able to meet in the Capitol in person? I mean, it's weird. In other words, we've had 20 years to put together. Um, it would seem to me a pretty straightforward system of I don't know Zoom for Congress that could allow voting to continue even if the chamber could not meet physically. But here we are because we don't have that in place, right? And because Pelosi because Pelosi decided to adjourn the House when she did um, and send everybody home, obviously she then can't reconvene them under the present conditions. I mean, she outmaneuvered herself then. So she's starting from a weak... So I guess I, I guess I would have liked her to have started from a better set of premises, man. You know? But I think... I mean, the, she tried to implement proxy voting, but Republicans, understandably, didn't want to allow her to do that because it would eliminate their leverage. Do you need, like, a three-quarters majority to change... Uh, to, to, to make that kind of change? I, I think there's something because I mean I guess by I mean what good is the house there's majority? something along the lines like that yeah I mean that's like, well again that's just a bullshit a bullshit part of the way we let the house function but I guess I mean look man she may have made she may have been able to implement proxy voting over Republican objections but I think she chose not to and, and there we go think, and you know what I, and there we go so what do you mean and there we go what what so, you think that it would be? I don't. I mean, she would get more tan. Like when the country is on fire, you want her to do that, and you think that would like adding gasoline to the fire would be better. When the country's on fire, I would like its constitutionally delegated lawmaking body to meet. You know what I mean? I don't like. I don't. Uh, of course, the idea that it would somehow be partisan and inflammatory to open up the House of Representatives is is a wild take. Man. So you that Come that on. is like. You you are representing now kind of a a right wing element of the House Republican conference that is saying we should be meeting we should be doing this, and Pelosi is the one saying we aren't meeting because the Capitol physician says that it's not safe right now because cases in Washington D.C. are kind of peaking. Right. right, so it's a little silly the idea that they should meet in person. But what what you're saying is kind of Dave, in line with the but, yeah, but Dave. If it's if Dude, if it's if it's okay for meatpacking workers who make shit money to do statistically the most dangerous job in America, if it is okay for them to go to work to make sure that all the little MAGA piggies have their breakfast sausage, then it is absolutely 
necessary for the Congress to find a way around that particular problem. If they can't meet in person, there has to be some sort of remote way to conduct the chamber's business. There's this, I'm sorry, man, there's that kind of learned helplessness that, well, we didn't have a provision for this in the rules, so our hands are tied as the country burns. I mean, that's just, that's, to me, that's, that's, that's what's insane. And I see you think the, the country is burning or you do, just you, said do you feel, it. well, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, do, do you think like in two or three years after a vaccine comes out that we're not going to kind of, what, how different will the world be then than it is now, at least in terms of America's relative position in it? I don't know, man. I feel like, I mean, I, you know, we talked about this, I think a little bit last time. And I think it seems to me that the, one of the big lessons of the Spanish flu epidemic that is applicable to this pandemic, and I think there've been a fair number of them, but one of the big ones is that, um, things probably won't change as much as they could. Just in, just in the sense that if you think about it, the Spanish pandemic is a footnote in our history, in the way it's typically taught, right? Like a, right, like right. a century on, even though, like, I mean, just as, again, as we've talked about before, like as part of like my, you know, one of the stories of my default family history is that like my great grandfather died of it, you know? So on the one yeah. hand, like, there's like this sort of, there's a folk memory of it. I bet lots of families are like that, but you don't really learn about it in school and it's subsumed between, you know, the jazz age, which followed immediately after it and then the great depression. And then, so I think maybe you could say it's an event that, uh, that produces long-term change as opposed to immediate transformation. Maybe that's a more, and maybe that's a more likely outcome because I mean, this is, I mean, this is, and again, like we talked about, this is like nothing else, uh, I think most of us have experienced. Like 9-11 is probably the only comparable thing. And it does make you, I think it should make you reconsider, um, you know, a lot of the standards by which we allow things to run and what we consider to be normal. And even if that doesn't result in immediate change, I think that experience will stick with enough people that, yeah, that the rules will be different afterwards, right? And that their pretendencies will develop that 10, 15 years down the line will seem maybe inevitable in retrospect. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, that that's probably true. I, I want, it, it's really interesting to think about how in 150 years people will look back on this and, and to what degree, you know, just like now the, uh, what was the 1850 compromise? Was that the Kansas-Nebraska Act? There was something there that, that at the time was viewed one way, but now we view it in, in within the context of, of as kind of a preamble to the Civil War. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, was that the Missouri Compromise? What what was that? The eighteen, the Compromise of eighteen fifty, and then the Kansas Nebraska Act um, four years later. Yeah, those were those right. were the bills. So we view yeah. those now through the prism of like everything that happened fifteen years after, right? So do you exactly. think nine eleven will be viewed ultimately as part of the block, part of the chapter in a in in a year twenty one fifty history textbook? Will will the chapter about nine eleven and Donald Trump be the same chapter? Well, that I mean, that's what the, a crazy question, yeah, right? That's that's the question, man. Because look, if you if we traveled back in time and told our college selves that, yeah, I mean, Iraq is still in a sense a political issue, even though it's a bit of a niche political issue in twenty twenty. Um, the things that right now absolutely dominate the news and really are indicative of things being radically different than life before 9-11 um, will pale in comparison to even bigger 
transformations. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, if you if you told us the day after Bush's re-election that Barack Obama would be elected in 2008, but then <laughs> eight years later, right. I mean, that would right. we would I mean that would just be that would be absolutely inconceivable to us. I know. And that's and yet here we are. It happened because we all lived through it. And that's and and here we are now in this pandemic. That, I mean, that's that's going to spur, I mean, if not a depression, an extremely serious recession. Like, you don't think there's going to be like but a V-shaped it, recovery, do you? I don't think there will be a V-shaped recovery, but I do think that there, and, and we talked about this last time too, but I, I do think that there is a a tangible light at the end of the tunnel. Like we, we don't know what the vaccine will be. We don't know what the treatment will be. But even Fauci will say that probably within two years, we will figure out a way so that we can end the social distancing that we're doing now. Right. And, but, if, but it could, are we going to sustain, um, are we going to sustain double digit unemployment for that period or, and, or but, waves of business failures? Yeah. But, but I think that we, we, we will do, we have an inexhaustible bucket of, of, of policy options at our disposal. Right. Grounded and probably in the idea that the dollar is kind of the only world currency, the the most trusted world currency, I which mean, allows us to a lot of wonderful, glorious flexibility in how we respond to this that no other country has. Yeah, just but, in terms of oh, sure, we'll right, we'll drop five trillion dollars into the economy, no problem. Like but, it's probably not great even for us, but we can only do that because we are we control the dollar. Yeah, but don't don't you worry that you you might sound like someone singing the praises of the gold standard in like 1930? I mean it's 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 it, we've had a good run as the world's reserve currency. You but, think um, that the dollar could within our lifetime you think the dollar would kind of Oh, a thousand fail? a thousand percent within our lifetime. I don't I'm really? not I'm not saying in the next uh year or anything, but yeah, oh yeah, dude, the, like a thousand percent, or do you really mean like thirty percent? Um, because that's a pretty dr- the dollar has had its current role since what post World War II, the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1945, right? Is so, that right? So, yeah, before so that, all of that, the dollar was not what it is now, right? So, there's yeah, there's this transition period where basically London's financial power moves to New York between like World War One and the end of World War Two. And then and it was our, you know, it was our hegemony that guaranteed an economic system that was so favorable to the dollar. And that is breaking down. Or at the ver- or to sound more neutral about it, that is in a state of transformation that is no longer favorable to the US being automatically considered um, economically or politically hegemonic. And don't, I mean, the coronavirus just accelerates those trends, right? Like, we're not going to bounce back from this um, in any time soon. If anything, this is going to accelerate economic trends that have been really, really harmful. Whereas, I mean, China, I mean... You don't think we're, you think that China will be better coming out of this than us? I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about it, and but I don't think this does. I don't think this does anything to alter the basic trajectory of growing Chinese economic centrality, right? And really, I, you don't yeah. think this hurts that? I don't. I think it hurt. I think it might temporarily harm it, but I don't think it it sets it off course. Look, I I don't think. How did I put? Feels this Feels to me like China is a much less reliable 
investment than it was a year ago. Even tr- okay, even if that's the case, the fact remains that China is China's at the source of so many supply chains that even if even right. if, even if people even if firms even if countries what have you wanted to shift away from that the time it would take under really bad conditions provoked by the virus in the first place you're probably aren't you better off rebuilding rebuilding relationships with a chinese regime that clearly has shown itself to be um i mean let's face it competent in a way that is not the case in the United States. I mean, look, obviously the Chinese death tolls are being kept down, I mean, in a way no different than ours are, right? But I don't think it's the case that millions of people died of this in China and that was all successfully hidden away. I think they had they had a bad outbreak that they clamped down on and that took a lot of damage, but it looks like it prevented it from becoming a nationwide serious problem. You know what I mean? I, I mean, where, whereas we've shown ourselves to have responded to this very poorly. So this does nothing to improve the shit trajectory we were on. I mean, dude, we could, I mean, we could have 20%, we could have 20% unemployment next month. If, I mean, if the, if the, if the GDP really does contract, you know, by 30% in the second quarter, you're telling me that isn't going to have massive ramifications. And I think people know that's coming, but until they see the numbers, I don't think. Uh, so you feel like the real. economic consequences are kind of lagging right now. We we have not, we are not at a low point. Yeah, I think it's sort of like this is, you know, this is the rot eating away at the timber, right? Like the damage is being caused, but the the you know the beam hasn't hasn't collapsed yet. You see, you know what I mean? And I think doesn't that lend toward gradually reopening economies to see if there's a way that we can temper that trajectory getting back to our earlier discussion right but that's but the thing is that we know what we need to do to do it and we haven't done that it's i mean it's like you can ride a motorcycle naked but i'm certain you'd be much more comfortable you know in you know, in biker gear and a helmet, right? I mean, the two things go together, right? Like, so you could, yeah, you can reopen it. You can force workers, low-wage service workers, to go back to work under unsafe conditions. But you don't have anything in place that could mitigate what we know is going to be. I mean, I mean, dude, I mean, you can't, at a certain point, you just can't argue with the epidemiology, right? You reopen things, the virus is going to continue spreading, like that's that's that has to be considered a given um and whether or not social distancing mitigates that maybe it does but it's a question of how much mitigation the point is that the virus will continue to isn't a question of hospital capacity at the end of the day doesn't it come down to whether or you know assuming people are going to get it right because if we're not going to have a vaccine for two years potentially right then the economic consequences that you're alluding to are unsustainable. Right. So we're going to have to open back up and we're going to have to make, you know, life versus money decisions that we haven't really directly made quite yet. Uh-huh. But if, even you at a certain point would agree that we need to begin opening back up again to but, avoid the very calamity you're referring to. But the question then becomes, why isn't our government doing what we know to be necessary to not only protect people's health, but to to protect 
baseline economic security. Why don't? Why isn't the government taking action to protect people on the verge of eviction, uh, or people for that matter on the verge of you know? I mean, I, I suppose I could play a tiny violin for the landlords who you know can't pay their bills because they don't have rent coming in. But my point is, is that nothing. In- heaven, heaven forbid you express any well, yeah. sympathy for the landlord, which I normally wouldn't do. But I guess just to illustrate the range of the problem here. <laughs> But I mean, but I mean, isn't, but that's fundamentally the case, man. Like why, why isn't the government simply just, why isn't the government what, just what universal? What would you like the government to be doing? Universalize these forgivable loans, right? That, that are essentially grants in all but name to, I mean, frankly, at this point, businesses of any size, make whatever money flow that is necessary to as closely as possible, preserve the economy of March, 2020 in ice until the infrastructure is in place to manage the public health consequences of thawing the economy out. That's what I'm asking for. And But if, isn't that basically if we lo- if we lose what, thirty percent of the economy in a quarter. Uh-huh. So you're basically asking to add a thirty percent annualized deficit to the economy. Yeah, who cares? To the, you yeah. don't clearly. No, I mean, and I, again, like I, this isn't to go all like modern monetary theory on it, but I, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. But, is going modern monetary theory. Then, Do you fine. believe in modern monetary theory? I'm very attracted to it, and oh I, my god! Of course, I mean, of god, course, you're I am, man. Fucking nuts. Stephanie Kelton Ugh. for Fed chair. I'm all about it. Um, but I mean, Ugh. I'm sorry, man. Like it's the I, deficit politics is a death cult in the context of a pandemic. And I'm sorry, it doesn't matter. In the context of a pandemic, you're right. Right. But that's modern monetary theory is basically doesn't matter if you're in a pandemic, right? They they would take the approach to spending that we are now in the context of a pandemic in terms of who gives a shit three trillion, five trillion, eight trillion, whatever. And fair enough, but dude, this is just this is just like in the seventies, you know, Republicans and Tories saying, you know, we're all Keynesians in a crisis, right? I mean, that's yeah. So, but that's what I was trying to say before is how you this the pandemic is somewhat good for you in terms of the macro role that people are comfortable with the government playing. Yeah, but I mean, but it, but that's the thing. It's not. I don't want. It's not that I want the government to be bigger. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the metaphor is you all kind wrong. of do. No, I want. I want the government. You know, think of the metaphor of the body politic, right? I don't want the government to function as the brain of society. I want the government to function as the bloodstream, right? As the circulatory system. I want the government to function in such a way that under both normal conditions and crisis conditions, it can swiftly, accurately, and efficiently deliver whatever aid is necessary to combat a particular problem. In this case, I want a government that is funded enough and competent enough and respects itself enough to aggressively take measures to prevent the spread of viruses like this and make use of all the weapons in the public health arsenal to do so. And then I would like to see the government massively invest in a crisis program that maintains people's economic and social security until more normal conditions can be achieved. I mean, that's that's just basic. That's what our, that's what our grandfathers fucking fought for, man. 
and I don't, and I just don't see why that's not, that's almost become this sort of like, like you can't, you can't be as far left as Bernie Sanders, you know, to consider that your basic platform. You have to expect more from the government, man. So and, who do you, who do you like for the, I know you love the deep stakes. Who do you like? I, it sounds like Klobuchar is in the running. I, I can't believe that. I part of me thinks <laughs> you would oh, hate that, wouldn't well, dude, you? <laughs> well, so, well, think of it this way, man. Like, I don't know if you're aware oh, of this, but there's a very there's a small but extremely vocal contingent of diehard Kamala Harris fans in in the online world who have not aware, believe it or not. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're they're out there. And they're very, they're pretty much they're pretty much her brand online, and they have now very opportunistically sided with Biden uh, tacitly on the assumption that he would pick her because in their mind she's just the obvious choice. So I can, what do you mean sided with Biden? Oh, in the sense that once I mean they, once the rally to Biden immediately after Super Tuesday became clear, yeah, they just they sided they you know they stopped flirting with like Elizabeth Warren or you know. Uh, well, I guess she was at that point the only one still right, Kind of like what yeah. you should have done, but refused yeah, to do. Yeah, 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 anyways, yeah. Anyway, they will, oh, but they will burn their bridges with Biden if... Like, that's the power of this Tara Reid thing, man, is that there are... The Tara act- Reid, the woman who accused Joe exactly. Biden of sexual assault. In what, 1993? I thought it was like 96, mid Whatever it was, okay, okay. Look, there is there a... a what do you think the... What, do you, what is that? How is that going to play out? Well, what, what do you make of that? that? That's an odd story lingering. And by, there was an editorial today yeah. in either the New York Times or the Washington Post. The Post, I think, calling on the Biden campaign to address it. To, right? re- to address it, which they haven't done yet. And it used, you know, it used to be that that was like a much bigger deal, right? And like if you watch the old Bill Clinton documentary War Room, like oh, they would wake up in the morning and look at the Washington Post editorial, and that would be a huge yeah, monumental way they 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 went through the news cycle that day. That drove Doesn't Clinton's have... entire introduction to the American public, man. That was, I mean, that, that was, was a great movie. I oh, still yeah. I watch that movie twice a year. War oh, Room, Doc, oh, a documentary. Oh, check Young it out. Young James Carville, Stephanopoulos. Stephanopoulos was what late twenties, early thirties in Some, that movie. Yeah, something like that. No, it's one of the great. It's one of the great political documentaries. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, anyway, what was I saying? What were we talking about? Oh, well, just about, so it's, so it's been something like 25, 30 years at this point, right? And look, I mean... What are we talking about? I totally forget what the, we were talking the about. The Tara Reid allegations and how that's going to play... Oh, that's right, election, that's right, right, that's right, that's right, that's so, right. So anyway, so the Washington Post came out with that editorial today saying he needs to respond to it. Yeah. And that's going to be a big thing. Yep. He is going to need to, He's, right? Exa- and, and it fucking sucks that this is going to be a goddamn part of the discussion now. Yeah, Dave. And, but but well, it will. It is. And Dave, like, um, the extent to which activist elements in the party, which I know you're not, you tend to discount, but are major players in the way the party's communication and party-affiliated media um you know, operate are deeply invested in the Me Too movement and the extent to which this starts to look like a double standard and an unwillingness to apply those same standards to a you know the senior member of great. So so a bunch yeah. of self righteous, impractical, politically correct millennial fuckheads are going to now start talking shit about Joe Biden over over yeah. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but now you are going to kind of feed into 
the narrative that Donald Trump and probably Vladimir Putin want you to feed ah. into. Oh, yeah. So good. Pat yourself the, on the back. The uh, enjoy the next few months the throwing gasoline Russia. on the fire. Hey, man, Let me ask you a question. What? I, and, I, and I don't want to come across as insensitive uh-huh. to, 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 to the allegation, but the, the allegation, as I understand it, is the kind of thing that is, is if true, everything I've read, it is pretty predatory. Hard to imagine somebody doing that once you know what i mean it feels like the kind of thing that that you are either capable of a human as doing or not capable of doing mm-hmm. so, and, and i haven't heard a lot of other allegations they're not even lingers they're not even whispers you know what i mean of, of kind of other of joe biden being known as kind of a of a of a overly flirtatious, making a but lot he, of people uncomfortable. But over he the, is so, known for that. I mean, but that's that's been a wide, that, yeah. That's a widely but, but reported aspect of his behavior. This wasn't, dude. This was an issue when he first got into the primary. I don't think I, I I know what you're referring to, but I don't think him being a little flirty <sighs> with senators' wives while they are being sworn in when he knows the camera is on him. I view that as inappropriate. Creepy, inappropriate. I can't imagine ever doing it, but it's the, it is not the same ballpark as the kind of borderline rape allegations that this woman has put out there. But Dave, and I think there it, is a world where you can be flirtatious and creepy, yet not be a predatory person, particularly if no other people. He he does not have a rumor of, of being predatory. He, you know what I mean? Like he, it feels a lot more Al Franken than Harvey Weinstein. Dave, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm imagining Democratic Flax giving this same explanation in flop sweats in October what, on all what the cable a, on all the cable news. Great. Shows. While you, while 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 liberals are out there talking shit about Joe Biden a month before the election. Hey, I'm gonna vote for him, man, because Trump, the president's trying Ugh. to kill me. I have no choice. But dude, like, look, think of the defense you just made, and Do think you, about making that in the context of a general election campaign against Donald Trump. Um, it's 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 an issue that look, I don't know how to diffuse it, but it has to be diffused, and maybe it can't be diffused. Maybe it's just it. Maybe it's just going to be a long eating wound for the Biden campaign. But one way or another, something has to be done about it because it strikes What direct- can he do? Well, he could make- What can be done? He could make a convincing argument for his innocence. How do you do that without people like you saying that you're disregard you you you, you would treat him like Judge Kavanaugh? Well, I mean, you would probably you would. And it, so, which, okay, but so I mean, you you are basically saying, assume for a moment the possibility that it's not true or exaggerated. Uh-huh. Assume that that may be the case. Uh-huh. How does that possibility alter your approach to the entire scenario? Like, what do you think that possibility? If you had to put a percentage on it, like if you were a Vegas bookmaker. What would you say the odds are that Joe Biden did engage in this kind of predatory behavior or didn't? And by the way, keeping in mind that the person he's running against was on TV saying, grab him by the pussy. So it's not like you throwing this into the discussion. You, 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 nobody in their right mind would say that, what, that he is comparable to Trump in, in this particular lane no, but of appropriateness. But, but, so why? What? what so... 
Well, Dave, I don't know how productive it is to to make it more of an issue than it is. Given that, like, what is the I, well, why? I, why? What is with your need to have a level of purity in the <laughs> national dialogue? That Dave, Dave, what? Dave, come on, dude. Listen to yourself, man. Listen, I don't, I, I don't know what Joe Biden did. I don't think it. I think there's a greater than zero percent chance that he did it. Um, but I don't know what. Do you think there's a greater than fifty percent chance that he did it? I, Dave, I, I don't know. Like I don't, I, I don't know how I can make that decision. All Dave. So, to what degree does the benefit of the doubt to Biden? play a role in your thinking and view on it or are you basically not giving him the giving the entire benefit of the doubt the way the way you know you you probably did with uh christine blasey ford and kavanaugh right but again after after she gave her allegation and and it's not an unreasonable reaction but you basically said i believe this woman Yes. Kavanaugh did it, and whatever Kavanaugh did when he testified later would not have changed your fundamental view, right? I do. Do you put the allegation against Biden the, at the same level that you view the allegation against Kavanaugh? What I've read about it, see, it seems as plausible to me. Like, in other words, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know why this woman would lie about it. I don't think that any of the circumstantial corroborating evidence makes her case weaker. And presumptively, I'm assuming that she's not lying about it for some ulterior reason. That, to me, seems less likely than a powerful politician crossing sexual boundaries with a subordinate. Because that's really fairly common, right? So... So presumptively, I guess, yeah, the balance of evidence would weigh against him. And just to be Dave totally mercenary about it, because look, the mer- look, I don't think Joe Biden's a great person to begin with. So the morality question doesn't come into play here. I think it makes him a weaker candidate against Donald Trump. And I don't know what the fix is for that. Like, seriously, I don't know what the fix is, because um, uh, unless you want to convincingly or can find a way to convincingly destroy the story of an accuser without it getting mud on the candidate, then go for it. But if you can't do that, you're going to have to you're going to have to find some other way to address the situation. And look, for why some... do you not do you not to to what degree has that purely politically not making any moral or normative statement, but purely politically, to what degree do you think what you just said is no longer true in light of the fact that Trump won after the Access Hollywood tape was made public? Like, is what you're saying no longer true? Do we no longer... like Because if that's true, let's say it were true, right? Let's say the public kind of thought it was true that Biden did that. Uh-huh. It's not like there wouldn't be a counter-narrative to things Trump has done. Right. Like the the anti-sexual assault crowd is not going to be drawn to Trump over Biden. And no. I don't mean to diminish it, but but do you know what I'm saying like just purely just kind of crassly politically. Right, but Dave, but isn't the the crassest calculation is that Biden only wins if he can mobilize the Obama coalition. And that includes uh you know, that includes college educated young women who demographically have very particular attitudes about this that have been 
deliberately mobilized by the Democratic Party, right? And now that is that movement that they that the Democratic Party decided to make use of when it was convenient for them has come calling for a very important figure in the Democratic Party. And when there's already pretty low institutional trust in the party, especially among younger voters, I think the Biden campaign should be extremely careful about what it does. And I don't envy them that problem, man. That's a shit problem to have, but that's why they make the big bucks. But damn, well, man. But you do you got to think, man. I mean, you, you, is this going to go, go unaddressed? Is he just going to pretend this doesn't happen during the virtual convention that nominates him in Milwaukee? Um, um, apparently, she has turned down numerous requests to appear on Fox News. Yeah, which I think so is... So what, 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 what is she... What, what is her deal? Like, what has she been doing the last 30 years? Do you know? I don't know anything no. about her. I mean, I no. I imagine. I imagine she's just. I mean, she like much like Christine Blasey Ford. I imagine she had a very normal life, um, that of which this was a part. And now it's because you know. And now, much. I mean, look, Christine Blasey Ford. That was one of the biggest, and that was one of the sleaziest accusations the right made against her. That she somehow stood to gain. I mean, her life was destroyed. She had to move. Her family had to go into hiding. Like what did she did she she didn't end up rich and uh, right. a celebrity because of <laughs> right. this? Like she was exposed to some of the gross, the most disgusting people in this country by virtue of being, uh, you know, willing to defy what Donald Trump wants. So I don't think anyone does this for fundamentally selfish reasons, and I'm. I, I'm, I don't see any reason to think that this woman is doing the same thing. I think you're seeing some efforts by partisan Democratic media to discredit her on grounds that they themselves would find to be odious if Republicans did it, and that's shitty. And it doesn't do it. It doesn't help. It doesn't help the rapprochement that the Democratic Party needs right now. It's a. It's 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 a shitty no, thing to it's have. It's not happen. a convenient thing for Democrats. No. It's not a convenient thing for Democrats. I, I, I do I do still maintain that that there is a defendable moral stance to take to acknowledge that if true, this is horrific and and it makes you think extraordinarily less of Joe Biden than you do now. You also need to think that even whether it's true or not true, it is probably safe to say that Joe Biden was less predatory to women over the course of his life than Trump. And even if you have a hard time saying that, the delta between Joe Biden and Donald Trump on all other things is such that he is clearly superior, whether or not this is true. And I think that there's a way that you can view this through the, again, granting that if true it's horrible you think less of biden but there's no defendable reason to have this make you vote for trump over biden because trump is worse yes on this and on other things so and and i what do you say to that so i agree and like I said, I would still vote for Joe Biden because I mean. So why it, is it productive though to pour gasoline on it? That's be, my point. If you agree and you still vote for Biden, why? Because do you not... because extremely important 
that Democrats like you who make that argument think about it in the context of the persistent problem Democrats have with mobilizing and sustaining an enthusiastic voter base that can deliver the victories that are commensurate with what we know to be the popularity of Democrats' agendas. If you consistently come to Democratic voters and tell them that the best you can do for them is half of a shit sandwich, Hillary Clinton was pretty popular in the Democratic Party before she, was. she got nominated and lost. She you was. did not deliver the the left. The, uh, you she know, was the, now, Dave. Now, of, Dave. Now, Dave. Yeah, now, yeah. ask. Now, ask. Ask any one of the deeply. <laughs> no, seriously, Dave. Ask any one of the deeply passionate Hillary voters out there to support Joe Biden with a clear conscience. Like, don't you see that problem? Like, how can you? No, be, I don't. Can, really? How can you Not be ostensibly? Not with reasonable Hillary voters. No, wow. I don't. I don't know how somebody who voted for Hillary wow. could conceivably vote for Trump over Biden yeah, when no Biden will Dave, bring in a lot of the same people and, Dave, and run no the same agenda Hillary would have. Dave, no one's saying vote for Trump. We're saying these are Democrats who are going to stay home. Like that's that's the problem. But right, but that to me is the same. Is equally, I, I don't view that much of a difference between that. Right, Dave, I. And that's fine. Particularly if you're in the swing state. You have to pick which argument you're going to take the bullying line on. Like, you can't be all bully to voters. You know what I mean? There's a reason people fucking hate Emanuel. And it's precisely that, man. Emanuel's, Emanuel's legacy to the Democratic Party is a communication strategy of basically emotionally abusing their voting base. And it's fucked, man. What? It is criminally... It is, it is, oh. it, he's one of the worst things to happen to the Democratic Party since fucking, I don't know, Gary Hart. Obama likes him. Yeah, well, Obama liked a lot of dipshits, man. Obama, yeah. Obama, Obama, Obama likes Timothy... Judgment. He likes Timothy Geithner and and Joe Biden. I mean, dude, you know, isn't the great Timothy Geithner who who saved the country oh, from yeah, uh, financial saved, collapse during the, saved the yeah. country. Dave, when the yes. Dave, when the kid, long may he live. Tim when the Geithner. kidnapper releases much me, respect. When, when the kidnapper releases me after the ransom is paid, I don't thank the kidnapper for freeing me. Right? They didn't free me. Yeah, that's yeah. that's not what happened yeah. there. Oh, Dave, you you have got to get out of your bubble, man. It's not a bubble. It's, you live in the bubble. You live in you live in literally the central bubble of the country. <laughs> I think you have. I think you operate within a pretty uh, pretty solid bubble there too. Of a global metropolis, a crossroads of every culture. Yeah, but in whatever the world. You, you communicate, it feels to me. I don't communicate with anybody who's even remotely close to you. I don't think on the ideological spectrum. I feel like you communicate with a lot of people who are on your ideological spectrum wavelength. Yes, which is which is something I, I one of the things I really like about living where I live. That is fair. Yeah. Well I'm worried about Kramer books, man, in Washington oh, DC. Man, I can't, we used to go there all the time. Remember? I lo- dude, I love that place. That the it was a bookstore with a bar, man. I remember bookstore with a bar. And I remember like good, a week, good steak frites. Like a week after turning twenty one, like stopping there on the way home from work and just like having a beer in the bar because I could. And it was like it yeah. was it was yeah it was one of the greatest like hours of my life. Dude, so many places like that, man. I I'm that's deep, what I was saying before. A I lot know. of places they're going to be under. That's I mean, and that's like Maura and I have been asking ourselves that like. You know, you put up with a lot of horseshit to live in New York, and if New York no longer is a place that has what makes it worth living in, why put up with the horseshit that you know is always going to be part of day-to-day life here? 
It's uh, it's it sucks, man. It really sucks. Yeah, you you gotta figure that eventually, you know, the I it it feels like that no matter how bad it gets, the government will keep raising the floor so that it won't get much worse than it has been for people who have already been laid off but are getting heightened unemployment and direct cash benefits. It's, it if things continue to move in the wrong direction. Or there's some kind of a second outbreak that requires kind of reverting back to a more intense social distancing protocol than we're kind of on the trajectory of now. The government will keep giving people money. They're not going to just kind of let. They're not going to let Lehman Brothers collapse again. They're not going to let the Great Depression happen again. Well, I mean, they might let. They might not let Lehman Brothers crash again. But what about what about the millions of people who are already living paycheck to paycheck who? Who, who need who need consistent aid, right? If they're not earning a regular paycheck, or you know, if they get sick and can't earn a paycheck, what are what are right, we going to do about But all of those people? people right now, for now, through the end of July, they're entitled to unemployment benefits of whatever their state gives, which you know, between between four hundred and twelve hundred a month, on top of which you have sixteen hundred a month, plus health care covered by the government. A lot of the, the people you're talking about weren't make, and, and I'm not saying that this is like the way it should be, but as a practical matter, most people who, who worked kind of minimum wage, less than $20 an hour jobs are able to get unemployment benefits and have health care coverage and not take much more than a 20% haircut on what was admittedly already a very low wage, right? right. But, but what I'm just saying is that there's a floor Right. The, the, the reason they're able to kind of have that is because the government is providing aid. And I don't imagine there will be a scenario where we're still in the, the place we're in and the, and, and the net will be removed from underneath them. Right. Which, which seems like a necessary element of, of things getting materially worse than they are now, unless I'm wrong about that. Well, I mean, it's more like I think it, I think there are two floors, and it's more and more readily perceptible that there are two floors, right? And there are two d- very different sets of Americans occupying each one. And I mean, it's you you it's it's hard not to get the sense that once the stock market stabilized itself, um, a lot of that sense of immediate pressure to act uh, seemed to abate, uh, certainly from Congress, right? Uh, but you know that's 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 referen- that references the economic health of comparatively very few Americans, right? As opposed to people who would benefit much more from direct direct cash aid, whether that's in the form of like a direct subsidy or the unemployment uh, extension of unemployment benefits, you know what have you. But it's very clear that there are lots of people who get in on a higher floor than others do. The stock market, it, it, I. I'm trying to imagine a scenario where you're happy with an outcome that is not also good for the stock market. Like, why is the stock market being helped a bad thing? Well, there's, well, for one thing, there's no direct connection. There's no direct connection between the health of the stock market and the health of the real economy. And the perform- no, it's forward-looking. And the performance of the market since the crisis began seems to suggest that once certain sectors of the economy 
were guaranteed support by the government, uh, and that guarantee was not fundamentally extended with the same largesse to the rest of the population. That was acceptable to the same sectors that are basically driving market activity, which is why you're seeing part of uh, the rise in confidence, even though we are looking at a 30% unemployment rate by the middle of the year. That, so that's that's pro it's problematic. To isn't be... the stock market saying that the thirty percent unemployment rate will not be there in September or October? It feels like that's what the trajectory of the market is is doing right now. That by that that it, things are beginning to dissipate, and the economy will open back up. and And it's not unreasonable to think that that eventually will kind of pivot back into social distancing if if it reignites in the but fall. But the market's plain. The market is plainly wrong about that. Right. No, it's not plainly wrong. Of about course that. it if, is. If Kelly, if is. if things open up during the summer and it's harder to spread during the summertime, it is not wrong for the market to think that there will be more a more vibrant economy for the next quarter than there is now. Well, again, I mean, I don't think we should be getting into the question of whether the market really thinks anything, right? Whether it has agents here, because again, I don't, I don't take for granted the idea that the market is a gauge for either the health of the real economy or, frank, frankly, even where investors are going in the long term. The market, the, I would put it this way: the if it were universally thought that there would be a thirty percent unemployment past July. And we would continue to just kind of bleed. The the, the paycheck protection, the, the 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 loan program would expire at the end of this week. They'd be out of money, and there'd be nothing else we would do, and we would just keep teetering and teetering and teetering. The stock market would not be growing if that's what smart people thought was about to happen. Well, but they're not smart. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? I mean, the market, the whole really? the whole point is that we keep being surprised by these sudden, seemingly unpredictable market failures or collapses of entire sectors of the economy, and it only becomes obvious in retrospect that they were moving toward a cataclysm. But the point is, is that to just say that the general trend of, you know, of market of market growth is telling us about where really smart people would think we're going to be in three months is what keeps getting us into this problem in the first place. Like, we're, there's no reason not to think double-digit unemployment isn't going to stick around stubbornly until at least next year. I mean, the idea that people are just going to start consuming uh, at March 2020 levels consistently from, like, July on, we have no way of knowing that. None whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. right, right, I mean, right. And I guess obviously by virtue of you know, investment necessarily requires you to make predictions about the future. But man, that's why that's why we talk about spirit animals and, you know, the irrationality of crowds, man. People have to think that there's a predictable future coming for a stock market to even function in principle. In principle, of course, in conditions like this, the direct market actors are going to revert to that. But that doesn't actually tell us anything about where we're going. It's a. I mean, dude. It's we shut. We shut the down. The market. The market was was plummeting. The the U.S. stock market was plummeting far before the government was acting on COVID uh, news happening overseas. Right. The U.S. stock. U.S. companies were down before we were really social distancing because they kind of saw it coming to a degree that we. That the rest of the of the 
governmental apparatus did not. But that's just a con- well. That's just another condemnation of the federal government, man. No, it's not. It's it, it, well. Look, maybe it's tr- maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. I, it, I guess that is true. But it's, yeah. that doesn't mean that it's not also true that the the market tends to represent at least a quasi accurate window, usually, of what the next few months look like. Right, but it's. I mean, it doesn't take it doesn't take an extraordinary act of wisdom to predict that a disease that even has the potential to become pandemic isn't going to set off some vibrations. Uh, you know, I mean, because by nature, investors are going to be conservative about uh, conservative about that, right? I mean, right. in a sense, that I mean, that makes more sense to me than thinking that the market rebound now actually predicts a robust recovery, which I just don't think there's any actual reason to see that coming. I don't think it predicts a robust recovery. I think most people acknowledge that the market growth we're getting now, mm-hmm. we will probably lose eventually when we get more bad news that we're inevitably going to get about the virus. Right. But but I, I think what, what it... That that doesn't mean that the next few months aren't going to be potentially positive, which I think is a good thing, all else being equal, right? You, the, you talk about the V recovery or the W recovery. Uh-huh. Isn't that kind of like the W recovery, where things open up again in the summer, people kind of travel a little bit? Right. Well, and that and that may well be the case. But again, man, one other one other precedent from the Spanish flu worth taking into consideration is that this yeah, is, this, it was bad. This is the, the same pattern. Right. And again, there was a general laxening of public health measures, which made the second uh, outbreak even worse than the first. And it seems to me that we're I mean, it seems to me, honestly, man, we I we got to do another episode that just talks about I mean, there's a lot of time to do this, but I'm really worried about how the election plays out. Going back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, there's a real possibility that we're literally locked down in large parts of the country on Election Day. Yeah, it, it that that's a really really dangerous possibility. That worries me almost more than anything else. God, we're it, it's really I, I I firmly believe that there's a, a a not an unrealistic possibility that if in like like right now if you were to think about the most fascinating time period to have lived through, mm-hmm. in my head I go to the American Revolution, French Revolution, like that that era. But I wonder if in a hundred hundred fifty years however things shake out people born in like 1980 compared to and then die in 2065 the change of the world that they see could potentially be more significant than anything oh it'll be yeah i think it's going to be we're definitely going through a, a turning you know what i mean and it's it's there's less predictability about some of the basic questions of how we organize ourselves than yeah than there's been in a few generations it feels like 19, 1983 at this moment feels closer to, to, to I don't know, 1950, 1920 than, than 2020. Exa- that's exact. We've lived through events that really do mark a transition point, right? I mean, even like, right. even if it's just being alive when the Berlin Wall came, like the 80s are still part of the 20th century world. A Cold War world, a World War II right, world. The 80, you're right, exactly. the 80s are the end. The 80s are really the end of the 20th yeah. 
century. Well, you know, Eric Hobbs, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Isn't that the end? Yeah, that's Hobbs, that's Eric Hobsbawm's uh, what he calls the short twentieth century. That the twentieth century lasted from nineteen fourteen to nineteen ninety one. Right. Right. And nineteen hundred yeah. to nineteen fourteen was yeah, you're right. Yeah. The end of the nineteenth century. Exactly. That's the long nineteenth yeah. century that starts with the French right. Revolution. Exactly. Right. And I think that's that's one of the greatest. That's one of the most <laughs> important historical insights of of the last fifty years. That's I think that's absolutely the way to think about it. And so we were born at the tail end of another civilizational century. Right, and right. The, so it's and yet so we're on the like other the side. The Ottoman of, Empire was in people's living memory when we were born. Exactly. So we're on the other side of something that we weren't born into. And the time and, and not far from now there are going to be people who are, you know, young adults whose entire lifespan is entirely in I don't know what we're going to call it, the long or the short 21st century. You know, everything. 80s movies are fantastic if in that respect. It's, I, I, I feel almost like I view those the way my parents view movies that were from the 50s when they were born. Right? It's, there's something about it that, that the fact that you were alive then, in the era where people were smoking, lighting, literally lighting up a cigarette while sitting in an airplane. Yep, like it was bringing, no bringing a gun onto an airplane. But let's let's talk soon, man. I got nothing. I'm locked down. So. Yeah, we should talk more often. Absolutely. Dude. Good. Let's do it, brother. All right, man. Be well. I'll talk to you All soon. Right. Be safe. Bye. bye.